Today's episode of The Day of Chang Show is brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. When I'm cooking, I can just say, hey, Google, set a six-hour timer for the bosom, or hey, Google, set a timer for 12 minutes for hard-boiled egg for Hugo. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tengo, as always, for the intro music. We have best-selling author, psychologist, professor at University of Pennsylvania, creator of the Character Lab, winner of the MacArthur Genius Award. She wrote Grit, one of the best books that was very meaningful to me, because grit is probably the only thing I think that I have as a skill. And to have someone dedicate their research to why people can be successful in the, yeah, even if they don't have the resources or the natural talent that society might deem as important without going too deep into that. I highly encourage you guys to regret. I think it's necessary reading for people in the culinary industry because it's more important than anything else for your success and the endurance in a very difficult job. It's almost required reading for people that work with me and the Momofuku organization. So Angela has been someone I've wanted to get in the very beginning, and the schedule's never aligned. She's incredibly busy, and uh, I can't believe that I've developed a relationship with her because I've just really admired her work, and she has some great TED Talks and stuff that you can see online. And we have a meandering conversation that touches a lot of different topics and it was just like chatting to someone over lunch so hopefully you enjoy that uh wanted to give um my opinion as fact this week jeremy fox i don't know when this is going to come out but jeremy fox has birdie g's and it just got a glowing review by the los angeles times and i've always admired jeremy he's been a guest on this podcast and i just love the fact that he's getting the recognition i ate there recently and it's just a very fun restaurant in santa monica and if you don't know the story of jeremy fox is important for people in this industry and to see where he's at today is incredibly uplifting and inspiring and he is the definition and personification of grit and it couldn't happen to a better person and I wish him all the success. So without further ado, here's Angel Duckworth. And we talk about a lot of things, but it's grit. And very happy for you, Jeremy Fox. You know, my entire life, I think I've struggled with the idea that I'm not good enough for anything, right? Whether it's grades or standardized tests or even in my culinary circles. And something that was drilled into me at a very young age was you just have to outwork everyone. And that was never really a good feeling when you see other people that are very talented. And I just uh, came back from uh, a company retreat or offsite or whatever you call it. And we had all our exec chefs and CDCs and general managers. And over the past couple of years, as I sort of stepped away and Marguerite's been able to take more of the business decisions and Stuff I've been able to talk more to my team about life problems and leadership problems and the struggles of success. 
And I've learned now just sort of talking to other people in the industry, especially people that are millennials and younger, it's like the same problem. Yeah, all the way down, right? All the way down. Which actually, I think the people who are not yet you don't know, you know? Like, they don't think the problem is all the way down or, in their view, all the way up. They think, like, oh, I'm different. Like, I- I'm I'm insecure. Dave's never insecure. Like, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I'm kind of, like, screwed up. But, you know, not everyone else. I think that's the that – it's called pluralistic ignorance when, when, like, everyone actually believes X, but everyone's, like, looking around and thinking that everyone else believes Y. Yeah. I, I don't know which is why – I was very excited to have you on the podcast. We've been trying to, both of our schedules a little bit insane. Yours, I think, is more insane. No, yours is definitely <laughs> more insane. I don't own restaurants. And uh, I've learned that there was a lot of different in, people in different industries that listen to this podcast. But again, I always try to sp- specify it for the people that cook in the restaurants and what kind of advice we can give them or I can give them. And I'm always like, I don't really have good advice in the sense like it's it's a— Like, how do you tell people that the myth of Sisyphus is an aspirational story? Right, like that that it is kind of a a happy story and not this like, well, okay, can I ask you a question? Because like you said that all your life you were struggling. I think this actually came up in our phone call too, right? I mean, this kind of, do I have it right if I call it an underdog mindset, like a kind of like, I'll show you um, thing or not? Because I wanted to add. It definitely developed, has developed into that of me trying to prove you wrong or you being a plural everyone. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you, yeah. Right. Yeah. You plural. Okay. So second question on that, but I, I, by the way, it's not every person that I study who's, you know, really gritty and successful who has this. Cause some people like, you know, like Katie Ledecky has never really lost a race. I mean, but she's superhuman. She's superhuman, but it's hard to like, you know, project an underdog mindset onto someone who never loses because, right? right? Actually, she got like, I think her first silver recently, right? Like, so, but a lot of people that I study have this kind of like, I'll show you, you plural, like, I'm going to prove everyone wrong. Like, I'm going to prove that I'm good enough. But I guess my question for you to, to start on that is, is that present tense or past tense? Like, do you still feel that way? Or did you used to feel that way as what you got, you know? It's what got you here because you're not an underdog anymore, right? There's like no I'm, way. I'm, I'm grappling with the idea that we're not underdogs anymore, but I don't want to lose that sensibility. But do you personally feel like I an still underdog? feel every day that it's all going to end? Do you I really? Do. I truly do. That every email I open up, I always think, but maybe like 10% of the hundreds of emails that I look at throughout the day are some kind of bomb that needs to be diffused. Hmm. And that bomb could eventually become a Cuban Missile Crisis. But is that like, oh, you know, there's a lot going on. This might not go well. or Because I think like the underdog mentality is, it's very personal. It's like about ego in a way, right? So I wondered whether your confidence has like, you know, now been varnished to the point where like, I don't know, it's glossy and shines. Or are you still like the person you used to be? No, I... When we opened up Major Domo, the restaurant in Los Angeles, I felt like everything was on the line and we had to prove to everyone. And I felt that if it failed, my career was over. Mm. I genuinely felt that. And I don't think that was actually too far from reality. Now, I still feel that, but it's not just me. I feel like it's how do I get that aligned for the whole restaurant and the whole group. But I talk to my shrink about this a lot because there's like a – severe amount of distortion in what is reality right. and what is in my mind. 
And I don't really think about this. I, this sounds crazy and solipsistic, but I have a very hard time believing anything that's happened in the past. Hmm. Because I've convinced myself that every day is almost like a Groundhog Day thing, that it didn't happen because wake up. I have to like push harder and push harder and push harder because if I begin to get comfortable, it will all vanish. And there are moments of hubris and there's moments of laziness right, in my or career or where that actually came to fruition, right? Mm. So. I actually have a hard time when I look at some of the things that we've accomplished. Only then I, I get a panic attack. I'm like, holy shit. Right. You know, what's going on? And then I have to forget it. Right. I mean, okay. So first of all, I can't tell you the number of you know, CEOs, uh, professional athletic coaches, um, and other high performers, especially the high performers who are trying to get other people to be high performers, which is now your you know, maybe improbable life path, right? So it's like, be a great chef is different from like, how do you create an organization mm. of of great chefs and, and other people in this work? And the enemy is complacency, right? The enemy is actually kind of like, oh, like things are actually going pretty well now. Um, no reason to think that today is going to be any worse than yesterday. So this like vigilance, this kind of like, oh, this could be over in an instant. And and maybe like the odds are actually pretty good that they are going to be. And then the energy you put toward making that not happen. I think that's what every leader, you know, that's the enemy. So I don't think it's unusual. But I do think this, I mean, I wonder, I have this question. I'm I'm of the view that you can both have this like, it's not good enough, it's never good enough, and I never feel comfortable or like relaxed in a, in a sense that's like some other people can. I think you can be happy at the same time. I don't think it's always the case that people like this are happy, but I think it's possible to be happy. So I wanted to know if you're happy. I am trying. I <laughs> you smile that, a lot, so I kind of thought, you, I, you know, I, like I, all I, your pictures, you seem happy. I think deep down, I, it's not always that case. Even, for instance, my big hobby is to saltwater fly fish. It is not relaxing trout fishing. It's all in. If you're not in the moment, you're going to miss it. It's very zen to me. Is this like a river runs through it? No, no, no. That's that's, that's the other one. That's that's the the other other one. one. This is basically doing this in the ocean where you're sight fishing. It's almost like hunting for fish. Obviously, it's catch and release, but it's very stressful. Interesting. (laughs) And I think that I do it because I want to make sure that even when I successfully land a permit or a fish that's very hard to catch, I'm still mad at myself because I'm like, I could have done that better. I could have, and it's not even about the fishing. It's like, can I control my emotions? Can I not get so excited? And it's not so different when I'm gambling. Can I walk away from the table when I'm up? Can I control my, me, you know, my default setting? And that's the battle. I'm at the battle with myself. And somehow that's tied to, me not being able to be happy with myself. Right. right? That you're dissatisfied. That's like, but are you satisfied being dissatisfied? Do you want to be, do you want to be more sad? Do you you wish you got, got off the boat? Is it a boat? I guess it's at least a boat, right? If that right. Boat and yes, both, both. You can walk in the water. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. Got it. So like, you know, the, the fishing's done and like, you, you know, maybe in your head, you're replaying certain moments where you could have actually like controlled your emotions better and therefore done a better job. Like, do you wish you were a different person? Do you wish you were the kind of person who was like, that was a great day. I did great. Do you want yeah, to I look that? at my other, some of the other people that go and they're just like looking at the photos of the fish they caught. Right. And I'm never, I mean like, yeah, that's nice, but it's fleeting. I'm, 
I can never really remember the fish that I caught. I can only really replay the things that I missed. Well, look, first of all, all human beings, by the way, have a bias toward looking at mistakes. You know, sometimes the principle in psychology is called bad is stronger than good. So say you get five good reviews, one bad review of a new restaurant. Where's your attention going? To the five good reviews or the one bad review? I don't care about the good. Exactly. You're like, there could be 500 good. In fact, one of my lines I tell cooks all the time is, we define ourselves by the mistakes we make. Yeah. And that's that's where all of your attention goes, right? Like, let's talk about the mistakes, right? I have been told that I need to embrace positive reinforcement better. Okay, so first of all, I think that a really, you know, when I when I talk to students, I, I said this just last week to a group of students. I was like, imagine you have 20 minutes with me, 20 minutes, and all I'm thinking about is you and the feedback I can give you from the, you know, few months that I've known you. Do you want 20 minutes of praise? Like, oh, you did this right. I love that you do that. Like, I see this. Do you want 20 minutes of criticism? Like, you could do this better. You could, this is how I would have done this. And I, was, I had said, you know, I can tell whether you're an amateur or an expert by whether you choose 20 minutes of praise, which is what beginners need. They're like, oh, I need my ego propped up. Am I, am I right for this? Can I do this? Nothing wrong with it, but I'm just saying amateurs crave that kind of encouragement. But I love the students who can say, oh, man, give me 20 minutes of flat out criticism. <laughs> I don't want to waste a second. So I, I think this is the thing, like, it kind of sounds like a miserable life, but like I live that life right. and I'm like, I mean, I grind my teeth, and, you know, like I get upset about things, but like, but I don't want to be a different person. I guess I'm, if the fairy came to me and said, magic wand, you could be this like relaxed, chill person who's just sort of like, look, you have a MacArthur, like it's a sunny day, you're well off. I'm like, no, I want to think about the article that I just submitted to the Atlantic Monthly that got right. rejected. Oh, by the way, this paragraph needs a, a semicolon like right here, like- I don't know. I'm like, I don't want to change lives. But why do you have to change? Can't you do? I guess the challenge is what, how do you do both simultaneously? Okay. So getting back to like Buddhist, Hindu, and also like, this is kind of like modern day cognitive therapy, which, you know, looks like we maybe both tasted a little bit of like, it's all the same in, here's, I think the secret, right? There is like a meta level on which you live your life. There is like the, like, oh, I don't like that. I made this mistake. So I don't know for you, like whatever I can't, I'm not going to make up an example. I'm going to be stupid. But for me, it's like, you know, I can even see if I wrote a sentence and then I, I see that sentence again after two weeks. And I'm like, what? This sentence has one extra beat. Like I should have used a two syllable word instead of a three syllable word. Right. So like at one level, I'm miserable and I'm ruminating and I'm upset. But there's this meta level, like me looking down at me. And I, I do have a, enough of a remove where I could be like, oh, I kind of get that that's me being a like a perfectionist and that's okay. And I think when you are a parent and a leader, you do have to achieve a level of like being where um, you're not imposing in a kind of like clumsy and non-empathic way this like standard on everyone all even if they I mean I think you should be honest but like I I don't think I don't think everyone can handle it like all the time but I can handle it like a lot. So the question then is what is the determining factor or variables that allow people to handle it or not handle it? Like what is that reason? Is it environment? Is it Okay, so in terms of genes, by the way, uh well, okay, I promise to answer that if I can ask <laughs> okay. you. So you are gritty and you You'd admit that, right? Like, it's I think just, it's, it's the only of, thing I have. <laughs> okay. You might have a little talent. <laughs> I don't know. I want to talk about talent too. But all right. Let's assume Dave Chang is, is gritty. It's got to be partly your genetics, right? Um, I think there's a fair dose of that, yes. 
And uh, and by the way, same for everything, right? Like your height, your hair color, everything's got like some genetics to it. Hair color, of course, especially. But when it comes to psychological traits like grit or extroversion, the story is super clear, which is that it's never just your genetics, right? So so all of your experiences of from when you were conceived, actually, not even when, since you were born to now. I think the question is, and and scientists haven't figured this out much, is like, which ones, you know, was it your first grade teacher? Was like, was it how your dad talked to you? Like, you know, was it the first girl you dated? Like, which of these environmental experiences make the difference? And science actually doesn't have an answer for that. I think as close as we can get is, I think this, because, you know, you've got a little person in your life now that you're like responsible for. I think um, the ideal environmental, like the crucible of grit is two things. And I think parents actually do this in different ways, but it really does come down to these two things. I think your kid needs a constant challenge. Mm. And if you look at a lot of children of privileged parents, you know, some of them grow up with like almost no friction. Like, oh, I can't learn that. Well, you can't learn this? $300 an hour tutor, right? Like, oh, you know, teacher looked at me the wrong way. Oh, great. We'll swap out that teacher for another teacher. And if you if you make a frictionless path for your kid, they're going to be missing one of the crucial elements to becoming a strong and passionate, gritty person. So I think they need to be challenged. They need to be put in situations that are not comfortable for them. Looks different from when you're, you know, two to when you're like 12. But I think that's one thing. And then the second thing is, and I wonder if you got both of these things, so you can tell me I'm wrong about your own life, but like, was there some source of like not good enough? You know, it's like somebody saying it to you or you being in a circumstance. And then the other thing you need, and I think this is sometimes missing in some Asian families, um, I say that because, you know, I'm Chinese, you're, you're Korean, like, uh, which is uh, support. Like, you do, I think, need an advocate who's just, like, unconditionally, like, you're great. Um, now, you may have screwed this up, but, like, I fully, entirely um, believe in you. And I think that's the combination that produces self-confident people. Actually, I think it produces not only gritty people, but, you know, kids of character, right? Like, kids who, you know, have the confidence to be kind also. Yeah. Was am I wrong about like what have you matched that pattern? Yeah, to no, like your, one, what, what, Where do you see this? One hundred percent. Like, um, you know, Dave Cho, the artist, and I, we talk about it. He talks about it as post traumatic growth syndrome, right? Mm. And I feel after you, I don't know how many hundreds of hours or thousands of hours of therapy, it's a uh, worth every dollar. Yeah, worth minute, every right? dollar. Really Everyone was. listening to this should go to therapy immediately. Listen, I, I am not here today <laughs> without it, and it's instrumental to the success of Momofuku. Um, I think there are a lot of things that you're maybe too young to realize what your parents did, but I can remember when I can recall is not fitting in pretty early on because of my skin color. Um, I forget where you grew up. Northern Virginia. Okay, it was like all white? All white, but also you have Koreans on Sundays, but I was like, I never fit in with Koreans, and that was like pretty early on. Koreans Uh, on Sundays at like church? Yeah, church. Oh, right, And. Religion was a huge thing in my life, which is something I was always skeptical of. Religion was a huge thing in oh, your life? Oh, my, so many people in my family are ministers or missionaries. And oh, my sister really? went to seminary school. So that was something that was a predominant force besides the tiger parenting. That was like, do as I say, not as I do tiger parenting. Mm. Um, moving as a kid to a place. So we moved to, uh, when I was younger, like seven and it was like a normal suburban lifestyle. And then we moved to be close to my dad's golf store. And now it's Route 7. It's just houses everywhere. But literally, I lived on a farm. Hmm. Like like two other houses were there. And it was total 
total loneliness, yeah. you know, except golf, right? So, so you moved to the place that only had two, like you yeah. moved from like yeah. humanity, civilization to like. And then, yeah. like, I think early on, that was like a big thing of like, oh wait, like this is hard. And then, you know, I mentioned this, or I, maybe I've told you on the phone, like. All of my friends, like Thomas Jefferson is the one of the top gifted and talented feeder schools. Maybe the first one. Thomas Jefferson was one. Of <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> like it was a. <laughs> but like I remember all of my friends that were Asian. They all went, and I was the only one that didn't go because you get tested, right? Did you not test in? No, because I tested terribly. But they oh. thought I did because I was really good at multiplication. And they're like, oh, he must be good, and they're like, Asian mm, boy. no, no, <laughs> he's he's staying behind. And I was like. I was like, wow, that sucks. And then golf was something I was really good at. And then mm. I think it was a crucial thing to know that I was really good at it. I was super cocky and I was a sh- little shit. I can't believe that. And then knowing that you're terrible, like pretty soon after, all right, you're not good enough. So it, the golf came first and then the rejection from Thomas Jefferson High School came second? No, or like what TJ was, was first and then golf. And then... Because I was so good at golf, I got into a lot of schools, from New England boarding schools all the way down. They wanted me on the golf team because my grades sucked. The SSAT or whatever. Yeah, the, SSAT. It's the independent school standardized test. Terribly. Interesting. So interesting. <laughs> terribly. And they're like, but your golf game, we want, we want it. So I got into all these schools because of golf. And I wanted to go to a local uh, – all I remember being young was Georgetown basketball because you had – Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, like Georgetown, and you had St. Almost Fire. Like people, where I grew up, like Georgetown was like the coolest thing to be. So I just always liked Georgetown. And then there's a high school, Georgetown Prep. So I went there and had its own golf course. I didn't know at the time I was going into the, now, the bastion of white male conservatism. Yeah. (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. And it was fucking hard. It was really hard. So was that the was that the you think, know, thing that, you that know, didn't was, kill you but made you stronger? Is that your PT? Yeah. It's actually this term, PTG, post-traumatic growth thing. Is that thing. whole thing was so hard so for me. So who was the support? If I'm, if I'm right about this, someone, something, because there are a lot of people who go through trauma, and it's not a, it's not a great story, right? Because there's trauma followed by just more trauma and damage, and I think post-traumatic growth requires somebody who loves you. Can I tell you, it wasn't, <laughs> sounds terrible. It wasn't my family. I don't, I've thought about this a lot with my, my shrink. It was never an individual. Hmm. It was a, initially you thought, oh, your mom, mom's love, blah, blah, blah. For me, I've identified it as books. Books? Yeah. So yeah, tell me more. You uh, started reading when you were in high school? Or no, I'm reading. Right? It was a, I really didn't do anything in high school, right? Like I was yeah. a terrible student too. It didn't really turn on for me because I still did terribly in college. Hmm. But I started to read all the things I wasn't reading, supposed to read. You know what I mean? Yeah, Just independently, right. I started to read shit. And that was the stuff that I was like, oh. Do you remember any of the books you read? Um, it all started when I was like, I was always really good in religious classes. That kind of abstract thinking and the history of it. Yeah, like, like I could always get and, yeah. but certain kinds of philosophy I'm bad at. Analytic, like it took me so hard. Like I, even though I was suck, sucky at it, I took all these logic classes and uh, it was not good for me, but I punished myself to try to get better at it. But what I really fell in love with was um, ideas and the fact that it was immutable, right? Not mm. platonic forms per se, but mm. the ideas of- They're kind of timeless. And they're, yeah, yeah, like friendship, the idea yeah. of love. Honesty. Honesty. Yeah. You know, these things I knew were- 
were never going to fail me. Yeah. And that became my, like. Like your support. Yeah. Your, like, your foundation. And a lot of it was reading, like, American Transcendentalists and then getting into, like, Nietzsche. But, like, a lot of dudes, I'm going to say dudes, that read it. Yeah. Nietzsche in college or younger, they're like, yeah. And now I've read him now again recently. He's kind of awesome. He's fucking awesome. Amazing. You dropped the F-bomb right there. Sorry. I don't care if you dropped the F-bomb. I'm just not dropping the F-bomb. Because like when you read it with a different, I think, some more maturity for at least myself, I was like, oh, my God. This guy actually did it all before anyone else. Before (laughs) Freud. Before everyone. And I see it a little bit better. And then I got into the New England Transcendentalists. And then— So cooking school had to come from some—that did not come from reading Thoreau and Russian literature. I wanted to— try to do something that was the opposite of what I was supposed to do. Interesting. Did you have, well, but what experience had you had with cooking before you went to I tried it. I tried. I, I in, mean, in cook, college, cook I worked, stuff. I worked at a bar back. I just so I could drink for free on Sundays and Mondays. <laughs> and then, uh, I worked at Sam and Harry Steakhouse junior year. Cause I took a semester off, okay. um, but I tried to get in the kitchen, but they wouldn't let me in. Oh, so you're just like around, I, you were doing something I was else. doing stuff, but I wasn't much. cooking, right? Cooking so, to me so was- So going to cooking school is like a bit of, isn't that a bit of a gamble if you actually hadn't actually- Oh yeah, and like, especially at 20, I thought that you had to be like 18 years old and go to the CIA. Right. And that's what I did. And I had no idea and I was terrible at it. So- Yeah, like a, let's talk about that. Like tell me about being terrible. So there's a, there's a restaurateur- she had some restaurants. She was in cooking school. She was my partner. She just has a restaurant. I'm not going to name her name. She has a restaurant that's been <laughs> that opened up. She's are. been celebrated. <laughs> and um, she was my partner. She already had restaurants. So when you go through, you have like a partner. It's like, is it like yeah, kind of having like a lab partner when you're in high school? And I was such a bad, bad at this. And I was right. such a mess. And right. I honestly, let me back up. Like I'm a late bloomer. Like whoever <laughs> and however I was, like I probably was so like, oh my God, this fucking guy. Yeah. Um, I just feel like sometimes I joke like there was a part of my brain missing. It just wasn't developed yet. You know, they yeah. say that about people. I was like, yeah. well, it didn't really happen for me until mid-20s. prefrontal cortex was yeah. like, yeah. And it was such, it got to such a point where when we finished level one, graduated level two, because there are six levels, she said, um, if he has to be my partner in level two, I quit. <laughs> and she quit. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess she made her way back to food because you said she owns a restaurant. Yeah, she, like, she was already in the business. Yeah. And, and um, Well, how could you be so bad? Like, okay, I understand. Like, you must have been not just poorly skilled, or was there something else about you that she couldn't stand? I think I just was a mess. Like, Can you be, like, more specific, though? Like, were you mean? No, 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 no. Okay. I just think I whatever I, whoever I was. Were you, like, late? Were you, like, her. messy? Were you, like rude? Were you like off color? No, none of those things. None of those things. I just think I was not good. You're just not good. Yeah. And like, uh, I must've been annoying to her too. But how, okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. Um, what, what about like, you had a whole year to get better at cooking and you're saying that like when you finished that year, like maybe nobody would have said like that one. No, no one, no one ever thought that of me. So around that time too, I started working at Mercer kitchen because it was next pretty like two minute walk from the school. Yeah. And like while you were still in cooking school. Yeah. So from get out of three, get to there by three 30 and work for eight hours, get home by one, be at school by like seven. Wow. And on the weekends I would, I was working at New York golf center 
just moving boxes around. Help your dad? And no, no, no. Like, this is a, my dad's friend that owned a golf store. So okay. I got there. And then, and then my friend from college was going to be a, a captain, a head waiter at Kraft. And I wanted to, like, I'd love Tom Clicky. I love Gramercy Tavern. And I was like, oh, man, like this new restaurant. And it was delayed. So I was, I was like, I got to get there. And I, the only position they would have for me is answering phones. So I was probably several months into this whole spiel, like five months in, because it's a six-month program, when I realized I never, t- I hadn't taken a day off. And I'm 18-hour days, too, if I'm getting the math <laughs> right, right? It was pretty crazy. Like, all in, I was like, wait, I don't know if I love this. Yeah. But someone that's been allergic to work. Who's like willing to, to like do seven days a week. I'm all of a sudden working a lot and it doesn't feel like work. Hmm. It's hard, but I want to get better at this. I got to get better at this because I got to beat the shit out of everyone. <laughs> did you Did you have flow moments? Did you have moments of flow when you were cooking? Do You, you know what flow is, right? Yeah, but I don't know if it was like that. Mm-mm. It wasn't like necessarily like, oh, I'm in euphoria. Like it's effortless. It's It's – you know, like I eventually got a job cooking at at Kraft, and that was under. Really, is it right, like right under Tom? Was he still there? Tom like, was there, okay. but it was under. Uh, and Tom was the producer and set all this up. And you had Marco Knorr, you had Jonathan Benno, you had James Tracy, Damon Wise, Karen Damasco. The list goes on and on. And to me, it was the perfect environment because everyone taught me, hmm. and I was just a sponge, and I was there all the time, mm. and I was just like. How do you do this? Soaking what do you do it this? Up. Yeah. And, but I still think though, at the time, whoever I was and however I cooked and whatever I thought about, and still that then people are like, oh, this guy's a college graduate. Let him do the number. Let him do it. And I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm terrible. Yeah. yeah. I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? I'm terrible. I'm cooking here because here. I'm, I'm bad at, I'm bad at numbers. Um, <laughs> but just the intensity that they had and the humor. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is about, it wasn't about even cooking. It was about mm. who could be the funniest person in the room. Mm. And the cooking was incidental. Right. right. But like culturally, you were like, I'm home. Yeah. Like, yeah, I finally found where it's I fit just, in. It's very serious, yeah. but also not simultaneously. Yeah. And to make beautiful things and the kind of restaurant craft it was at the time, which is very like fundamentals. It was so important for me and getting to just be a fly in the wall in every aspect and learn and then make mistakes. So to Tom and everyone there, I still am like incredibly thankful, but spending two years and I never took a day off either. Really? <laughs> no, I mean, I took the date you'd have two days off, but I never took vacation, but I was constantly asking questions like, oh, how do I do this better? Is there another way? Let me read up about it. It was total immersion, right? right. Oh, we're doing this technique. Uh, well, there's no internet. There's no collection of recipes on the internet. I was like, guess I got to like- I'll figure it out. Figure it out. Go go buy books and study, study, study. It was pretty crazy now that I think about it. And it's not embellishing. I just work like a like a lunatic. Look, you just used another non-curse word. That's I tried good. to. I yeah, was about to say. I, saw, I know. I could see that. So that's how that all happened. And you I don't blame anyone. You something else too. So like in addition to the like, I mean, look, if I were an investor and I had to pick out of 100 people, like who to invest in- I would want to see like a time date stamped log of like where they are and ideally of course like what they were thinking about but like that person who's like they're in and they're like they're there at 3:30 but the last thing just ended at 3 and like they're not t- I mean I know I I know I'll probably get hate mail about this but like I think that is the person who's going to be successful. I like, agree, one hundred percent. Like, like, sorry, but like, it, it's obsession and it's uh, it's drive. Um, can I ask you about talent though? Because like, 
I, I hear that word. Actually, I listened to your podcast. Um, I mean, I've missed a few episodes, but like, you know, people use this word all the time, but I don't really know what they mean when they say, like, what does talent mean to you? You know, and I've read your books and I've listened to you talk about it too. I, I don't know what it means other than it's the innate ability to be better at something than someone else. Do you think you're pretty talented? Like on a scale from one to 10, how talented are you innately? In better? cooking? In cooking. Cooking. I'm a one. <laughs> Wait, was 10 good or one good? One is bad. One is bad. It does not come naturally to me. And because of that. No one's going to believe you. By no, me. I know they don't. But trust me, I have the data to support <laughs> it, right? It doesn't come natural to me. It doesn't. And, and you can talk about it. When you're in the zone or like the whole kitchen can be in the flow. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's a dance. Yeah. You don't, yeah. It's like improvised choreography. I'm not like that. Like I am like. I have to work harder to be faster than everyone else. I have to get in earlier and scheme how it's going to work. Yeah, how are you going to make it work? Um, Because I know my deficiencies, it's not like I'm going to use that as my default. Well, I guess I suck. I'm like, okay, I now have to understand why I'm bad at something. And I have to look at every angle now. And the way I've really looked at this, and it's something I talked to Jerry Saltz about, why I've been trying to understand art a little bit better. It's like, oh, other people can paint beautiful Italian Renaissance stuff. Mm. I only know how to do like weird, like. <laughs> <laughs> can't do that. I can't do that. So I got to find what I can do. Mm. And, and that's how I've always looked at it. Like tortoise wins the race. That's right. how I always looked at it. Right. Like I'm going to fucking win. I don't know how, but I'm going to fucking right. win. <laughs> so interesting because um, do you tell your young cooks like, I'm not, uh, you know, they don't this is not coming. Me. They don't, and they don't believe you. I they bet they don't believe you. Why do you think they don't believe you? Because it's improbable. It's too improbable. But I can tell you for sure. But the thing is, why I love cooking, which is why it resonated with all those ideas that were so near and dear to me, was no one can take away my hard work. And if I like Brunoising shallots, it's a pain <laughs> in the ass. But I forget what Brunois means. Is that like perfect, little tiny little perfect, ones? Like. like Perfect little dice of oh, oh right perfect. like tiny little squares that have the dimension of mm-hmm. like the whatever the one layer of the shell to the other but then right. you make the other yeah okay got it like a centimeter millimeter millimeter yes yeah. and um, I was really bad at this and I remember like all my knife cuts were really bad and I was like oh my god like the first one of the first things I had to do at Kraft was to do Macedon which is basically that would be like whatever a cube a small cube yeah. of carrot dice and yeah. celery. Because it went in the braised short rib dish. And it was my first day trailing there. And I had to do three quarts. So nine quarts of carrots, celery, and onions, red onion. It took me like 12 hours <laughs> all day. Yeah. And I was like, and they were terrible. And when it was all done, I think Jonathan Benno said, hey, so nice. He was very encouraging. Hey, great that you did this. <laughs> and he put it, they put it all in the stock pot because it was terrible. <laughs> Right, it's like, we're just gonna boil this now. And then like, I and then I saw yeah. him do it all in like thirty minutes. You know, and how and are you not discouraged? I was no, I was like, I'm done. I went home. I'm sure. Oh, you were. And the were difference is, is okay. like you, like I tell cooks all the time, like you're gonna think about quitting at least half a dozen times. Right, like you're gonna come home and you're gonna be like, this is not for me. If you're not feeling like you want to quit, you're not trying hard enough. Oh my god, I'm gonna quote you on that. If you're not feeling like you're gonna quit, you're not trying hard. It's enough. true. You got to take yourself to the breaking point. Yeah, take it, take it to the edge. And I was like, mm. I remember like, I have to go home. But the fear of telling someone an embarrassment that you're going to quit right. is the only thing that prevented me from quitting. 
See, you know, a lot of people want just the, you know, like fairy tale story that like, oh, you know, Dave Chang's motivated by excellence and it's all positive. In psychology, it's sometimes called an approach motivation. Like, I want this and like, Cowie's going to be that and it's all. But there is another kind of motivation. It's called avoidance motivation. So unlike approach motivation, it's basically fear of the negative. And I have to say that um, even though everybody wants like, you know, the story of grit and success to be like, purely about like approach and it's positive and like, you know, it's creative. But I have to say that there are a lot of people that I study that have a healthy dose of, or maybe it's unhealthy, I don't know, of, um, of avoidance. I mean, one of the top surgeons in the world told me that uh, to this day, he is motivated by fear of failure, uh, <laughs> like daily, right? And it's just so interesting because a lot of people are like, oh, I don't like that story, right? Like that's not a- I feel that, so 100%. And now, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Adams. Adams are the ideal everyday shoe and the world's first shoe to come in quarter sizes. Because 60% of people have one foot bigger than the other, like myself. My left foot is about a quarter inch bigger than my right. Adams lets you get a different size for your left and right foot. Adam sends you three pairs of shoes in quarter size increments. You only pay for one pair. Then you pick the individual left and right shoe that fits best. Adam shoes are unisex and have a simple design that accents your personal style. The custom foam in the Adams Model Zero is extremely comfortable and the antimicrobial copper lining prevents odor. Plus, they offer free shipping and free returns. I love Adams and I'm not just saying that. If you see me wearing some new white kicks, it's the Adam shoe. It's very, very comfortable. And I've never worn white shoes in my life, but I wear white shoes now because they're that comfortable and they look great too. And even my wife, Grace, who's very stylish, compliments my shoes so much so that she wanted her own pair. So to try the world's first shoe to come in quarter sizes, go to adams.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's adams, A-T-O-M-S dot com slash Chang. Adams will send you three pairs of their incredibly comfortable shoes so you can pick the left and right shoe that fits best. When you order at adams.com slash Chang, they will even include a free pair of socks. So if you want to wear the ideal everyday shoe, go to adams.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. Today's show is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a software solution used by over 250,000 restaurant professionals to schedule employee shifts, improve team communication, stay labor compliant, and cut down on labor costs. We use Seven Shifts at our Fuku chicken spots, and I love it because it makes scheduling employees at multiple locations easy. It also integrates with our POS system so that we can schedule to hit our labor targets. But this software isn't just for me because Seven Shifts free app lets employees view their shifts, submit availability and time off requests, swap shifts and chat with their coworkers on the go. Man, when I first started out, doing the schedule was the bane of my existence for a variety of reasons because if you've done it, you know. And if you work for a company and you're trying to schedule stuff, it can be a pain in the ass just to get your days off or any kind of information about your schedule back to you. It's so hard. And at Fuku, we scheduled over 2,000 shifts for over 80 employees every month. And Seven Shifts drag and drop schedule builder automatically factors in availability, time off, overtime, and labor compliance to build perfect schedules fast. This is so important to have in the restaurant business. If you've created schedules, you know it. And again, from an employee perspective, it's so 
vital. So if you want to start building perfect restaurant schedules in minutes, visit sevenshifts.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, to start your free 14-day trial today. That's number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash Chang for a 14-day free trial. For a lot of these listeners that work in restaurants, this is something you should definitely check out. And now back to the show. So I've been wrestling with happiness. I've been wrestling with struggling, uh, the struggles of success. Cause like I loved your book because grit tells you not this fairy tale romance of how you're going to become successful. It's actually the opposite. Right. And all these books about leadership and success is about getting to the mountaintop. No one ever talks about what happens after the fact, or is it even worth it? Yeah. And you know, if this was our own character lab, Momofuku, since 2004 to 2019, even though I'm not in the kitchen that much this year, I've worked with the beginning of the millennial generation and the end, hands-on in a way that most people have never done, in yeah. my opinion. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I've seen it all on that. Right. And there are certain characteristics that I believe are true. Of the millennials. Millennials. Yeah, and and I it. think yeah. that it is- um, Tell me about them. They have been- I'm not going to say told a lie, but I'd say it's like they've been told a lie what happiness is. Mm, which is? It's a marketing lie. Mm. That happiness is to work to a point where you don't work. Happiness is to work hard so you can sit on the beach drinking a Corona under an umbrella. Right. Happiness is, you know. Getting off at 530. And, yeah. Right. Um, Relax. Happiness is retiring early and that fire bullshit, which is good for them, but like. What's good for someone is not good for everyone. Everyone, yeah. And it's become this marketing lie. And then I was like, what else has been a marketing lie? I was like, well, going back to Nietzsche and the genealogy of morals and beyond good and evil and the Mm -hmm. idea of what good and bad is. And then going into Sisyphus and then a lot of Camus and Nexus. And I was like, oh, the absurdity of work. And then if you ask a lot of millennials, and I love millennials. I'm not trying to hate. I I spend so much time trying to be better leader Yeah, like you're trying to be a better, you know, right. Is that if you ask most people if the myth of Sisyphus is a happy or sad story, everyone would be like, definitely, that's awful. Oh my God, I just realized when you said Sisyphus at the beginning, I got it wrong. I was thinking about Daedalus and Icarus and no, the sun. Yeah. I was like, wait, hold on, no, this no. is the bolder story. Yeah, no, no. Sorry, I, like, but I'm with you now. Yeah, yeah. So, so like the drudgery of doing something over and over and over every day, people would think that's hell on earth. I, I'm not going to say people. I can assume that a lot of people might see that that is not what they want to do. It's not expression of themselves. Right, right. They and want I, the opposite of that. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I've seen that. And I also have seen the most dangerous pitfall of it all is the taste of success on their own accord. Right? Like once yeah. they taste it, they expect it to be easier. Mm. moving forward. And that's across the board. Really? Okay, wait, say this again. Like, what do you mean? Like, give me an example. I don't know what it would mean. Like, the, I can't picture a okay, in uh, chef is a chef. Chef becomes a chef and now he or she has a successful restaurant. Okay. And then it's like, okay, why Good am I not making more money? Why do I have, have another cookbook? restaurant? Where's my, <laughs> you know, where are all Where's the offers? Where's my television show? Ah, interesting. Okay, right. Because they have those, they have a misconception about the way this whole, whole thing works, right? Is that what you're saying? That these millennials maybe Not just have millennials. This- I think the world at large, and it's been exasperated by the media, right? Not. Right. I'm not trying to sound like Trump. I'm just yeah. like, it's easier for us to market happiness in that format and sugary and poppy as it is. Yeah. 
And I have you, a view on this. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> and um, I have thought about this a lot, and you're the only <laughs> So tell me if I'm totally wrong. I, no, I really love, okay, this top, by the way, wouldn't it be great if you could get all of your, like, you should have book club at uh, all of your, like, we should, we should be reading Nietzsche. I know. Like, oh, so I got, awesome. I've been, you have no idea how many times I've, I've tried to make people read Birth of Tragedy, which He's I think. He's a good writer, too. That's a hard book to read, okay, I think. Fine. Not as hard as some, but. It's, it's I'm not dense, a Nietzsche expert, you know, but we can we just start them on something dense. easier. Okay, like, or a page of Nietzsche. Okay, here, here's what I think about this kind of like the marketing. And, and you know, Nietzsche himself said that the reason why we have like a cult of genius and that we, we sort of assume that geniuses do everything easily, um, effortlessly, um, magically, right? I mean, he gave a very, very, I think, accurate psychological explanation for why this is perpetuated. Like, why do we believe the wrong thing? Because we want to. Because if I believe that Dave Chang is a one out of 10 on talent and just like works to like, you know, you know, his fingers to the bone, like then Nietzsche said, I have no excuse but to get off the couch and start working. And Nietzsche said, people want to sit down and like, you know, kind of like take a load off. And and if if I think you're just different from me and I'll never be you. And I think that's, there's something here about like the myth of success too, right? Like you could ask the question about like, hey, look, I don't know if I have a conspiracy theory about marketing or whatever, but, but you could say like, why do people subscribe to that that vision of success or that like, you know, image of a great lifestyle? It's because there is a it's the easier frictionless path, right? But it's human nature. We don't want to, we want to feel pleasure. Right. Right. It's natural. Like Right. And they, and we don't want, you know, Freud had this term, which I, I don't even think it's in the dictionary, but I love it. He called it unpleasure. He, Freud said like, you know, there are moments in life where you have to put up with unpleasure. I was like, oh my God, what a great word. We need that word in 2019. And I, I think that's right. But like when you said um, that for you, like you had a moment where you were like, I can at least make this like Brunois or whatever, like better today than I did yesterday, maybe just a tiny bit. Do you feel like that also is like the possible route out of these millennial, yeah. you know, like if you, if you, do, if you, you could do show the work. it to them? You have to do the work. And I sound like a crazy person, but I... It works for me, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I think doing the work, and most people would assume that I'm pretty unhappy, which I can understand that as well, but I think maybe I'm the happiest person and everyone else is unhappy. Sounds solipsistic for sure, but I have to entertain that thought because what if happiness, right? If the idea of good, going back to Nietzsche, is like to be excellent and to endeavor to do great things and bad was weakness and cowardly. Yeah. Or not then, trying, never, never tempting. Right. Yeah. And then that got changed to the Beatitudes and then bad <laughs> is really evil. Then maybe happiness got distorted along the way as well. Mm. Right. Well, you know, if you're going to make a movie that has like an hour and a half and like, you know, the the romantic view of like the good life and success and it's easy and whatever, like it's just a lot more. You know, I went on YouTube once to like find videos of practice. And what partly inspired me was I was, um you know, hanging out with a sociologist who spent six years living with swim teams. I mean, swim teams at every level from like the, you know, the club around the corner to the Olympic trials. And he said, here's the thing about practice. It's really boring. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you would have like people fly from around the world to like, you know, watch some world-class coach, you know, but you know, after about like an hour of watching swim practice, like you kind of want to go home. It's like incredibly boring. I, I went on YouTube to see like, just Google, go onto YouTube and Google like practice, right? So you can see it. You can't find almost anything. Nobody videotapes their practice and puts it up. This unglamorous view of, you know, an excellent life, a life of virtue, a life of 
striving, I, I think it's like the opposite of immediate gratification. And, um, you know, it's not fun to watch on YouTube. It's not I fun to like, you know, my, I'm really all my cooks or when I say chefs that are beginning to learn how to put their voices on their own menus. It ha- we talked about it with Unjo, who's the chef here. They're so afraid of making a mistake in real life that they only do the dish in their head. Really? Mm. Or being an embarrassment. But that's not the that's not like you no, know, not wanting to put in the work, right? That's like a now a different thing, isn't it? But it sort of is the same thing. I in, how, yeah, how? Not doing the work is because they don't want to feel pain. Ah, okay. Right. You're like all of this is just basically you don't want to feel pain. Right. But gets I think translated to them as not feeling pain, but saving time. Mm, right. And but really you think it's pain that they're avoiding. At the core of it, yeah, yeah, humiliation, embarrassment, to be reminded that maybe you're not good See, enough. See, this gets back to your sort of like, can you be happy and successful? Like, can you be happy and can you be happy and still excellent, right? Because you know that what made you excellent is just caring so hard about yeah. like everything. And it's like, you know, it's exhausting probably for other people. Exactly. Yes, it is. You, right? <laughs> I'm sure they tell you, like, you're exhausting. People tell me all the time, like, oh my God, you're exhausting. I'm like, take a nap. And, and uh, you know, I email my team and I'm like, you know, that color blue – I hate that color blue. Like, you know, like, and they're like, oh my God, the color blue. I'm like, yeah, that, those umbrellas, those thousand umbrellas we just bought, I want to throw them all out. Like, it's the wrong color blue. So I know it's exhausting, but I'm wondering, like, is there anything that you can do to be meta about it? Like, so in terms of being happy, successful, and excellent, like, I don't know if you at least know that about yourself and kind of, and, you know, you answer the magic wand question, which you haven't really, but I'm going to keep asking it. Like, I can answer the magic wand question. I don't want a, a fairy to come and make my life easier. I really don't. Like, I don't want my fairy, you know, to be like, oh, you know what? You're going to wake up tomorrow and you're not going to care about that blue umbrella that, you know, is the wrong shade. You're not going to care about the semicolon. Like, at a meta level, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, mm. I want to be, yeah. I mean, so do you think we could teach the, uh, like, the young, have you ever done anything or said anything just like a young person that helped them appreciate that? Yeah, a lot. And and a lot of it is just like talking the way we're talking about right now. And, yeah, and, I think there's a lot of it. And um, I think the best version of what you're talking about, the magic wand thing is, yeah, when I think about it, I wouldn't change a thing about anything. Of course I would when I think nostalgically about stuff. Right. Or there's the, a part of you that might want to. Right. right? Yeah. But I can only think the way of not changing anything if I was not being present along the way. If I just mm-hmm. was like floating along, being like, it is what it is, right. and I wasn't rejecting the events, yeah. then then I would be like, yeah, I wish I could change everything. But I think along the way, it was a war of attrition, right? right. And I just sort of learned that every event, every decision was like an amalgamation of everything that got that me to this point. That had come before that. Here's one thing I think we could do. So I think like when when people hear a conversation like this, I have to imagine this is a big part of your motivation to even have a podcast. Like you do think that it's helpful to people to like listen to real stories and, you know, people be vulnerable and tell them the things that you wouldn't find on YouTube or like, you know, hear somebody say, look, I know you're not going to believe me, but let me tell you how it was. But I think there's something else also. Like in therapy, when somebody has a phobia – 
a true extreme, you know, acute fear that's dysfunctional, like fear of snakes, fear of airplanes, the number one treatment for that is exposure therapy, right? Just like in small doses, like here's a picture of an airplane. Okay. Like, you know, now we're just going to like go to the Philadelphia airport and come back. And then, you know, now we walk through the terminal and then you eventually get them to like actually take a flight or in the case of snakes, like actually, I think it ends up in exposure therapy. So you're like, you got a snake around your neck or whatever. So in small doses, could we like force young people, and I use that word maybe in air quotes, but like sort of, well, yeah, I guess force them to try things they don't think they can do and kind of rig the game so that we know they're going to, I mean, just think about Hugo, right? Like Hugo is not going to want to try things that Hugo can't do because, you know, basic human instinct is to avoid discomfort. But if we could force young people into just enough discomfort that they can wake up and say like, wow, I I honestly didn't think I could do that or I didn't know what this would feel like, but it feels great. But I'm this proud. Is, this is, yes, 100%. But this is what you were saying earlier about people that have been successful and someone being their advocate. This is when I do see this. Uh-huh. For instance, there's um, one of our sous chefs. She has a terrifying fear of making a dish like for herself. Like she's gotten to this point where she's risen to the rank. She's worked really hard. But she's been a dramatic actor following a script. And she's mm. been very good at it. But for her to be a leader of people, she needs to learn Confidence. to improvise comedy. She needs to be hmm. – she has to – there's no more script anymore. She has to go off script. And that's a terrifying thing. And for her to unlearn everything. And I've been reading this quote over and over and again to me myself. is like Picasso said, I spent my entire life – I spent four years of my life learning to – paint like Raphael. I spent the rest mm. of my life learning to paint like a child. Hmm. And that's what I've been trying to tell her is that, mm. listen, let go a little you bit. You got to right? actually do the opposite of what you think. And we were working on a dish and the next day she's like, oh, I, I could tell she did hours of work and looked at their, all of her cookbooks and found every similar recipe. And I said, no, 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 no. Yeah, you're <laughs> so now like, we can't do that. That's Raphael. And then what happened? It's been hard. This has been a, like a year process. And we did a dinner together outside the city. And it dawned on me. What helped me understand this was, I was like, oh, she gets very emotional about this. She, she of course, wants to. Right. But she'd rather do, rather than making decisions, which is weirdly what she wants to be doing, mm. she'd rather do the thing she hates the most, which is managing and doing the paperwork and cleaning and organizing, mm. Mm. which I see a lot of chefs do. Mm, that's so interesting. To do the thing that they they hate everything so much, they wind up doing the thing they hate the most. Because they're afraid? Because it's something they can control. Because it's something they can control. They can finish. And this chef or sous chef has a fear of lack of control and like like just sort of like uncertainty or like what a if free I try free fall learning how to control free fall so how are you how are you i have an idea but i wonder how you're doing it like how, so, how you're helping so, her so part of it was just slow it, and then i thought to me it's like if i had a karaoke or dance in front of everyone i wouldn't mm. be able to do it i would be in tears if i had to force to be do it and i was like oh this is a similar thing and i told her i was like listen my fear would be to be a stand up comedian so if, if it makes you happier i'll do amateur hour <laughs> At a comedy show, and you can sit down, and I'll make an <laughs> ass out of myself. Right. And she's you like, You can heckle me. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, You know, I'm not joking. And, and she's she like, uh. I was like, No, that's on the table. And the other thing is, you just need to share your ideas. And I've been asking for emails or just any ideas, and it's happening now. And 
I kept on telling her, I was like, this is a marathon, right? You got to yeah. run a marathon. Like you got to train one mile at a time. Yeah. And it dawned on me, she doesn't even want to get out of the house. So I was like, let's just go for a walk around the neighborhood. Right. Yeah. And then we'll get there. So it was me just empathizing a little bit more as to what her comfort does level she, would does be. Does she think you're right? Does she think you get it? I don't know. But I'm not going to, I'm going to try everything. I bet you possible. asked though. I mean, yeah. did, did she, does it seem like, I mean, is she, or is she like, look, you don't understand this at all. This is not like you're on the wrong path. I think I get it. I think you do get it. I think she thinks you get it. And what I don't want to be is someone that's saying, I told you, I'm telling you. Right. And the one thing I've learned through my stupid way of leadership, which is a lot of mistakes, was I can get anyone to anything that, they, that I want them to do. Right. But can you help them do what they want to do? On their own volition. Yeah. Have you asked this uh, chef to, like, it is a marathon. You can't train for 20, you know, you don't go out and run 26 miles, right? And if you have a, a snake phobic, you don't put a snake around their neck, mm. right? That's not the first step, right? First, you write the word snake on, on a piece of paper. But the old, right? old, old way of cooking was, here's a room full of fucking snakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, all the, all the terminologies, like war term, like yeah. brigade yeah. and like whatever. I mean, yeah, it is, it's, it's very macho too, right? I, I don't know. I think yeah, I feel stupidly like if, so, yes. Yeah, I feel like if women had been in charge, it would have been a very different culture. But like with this chef, because I'll just say this, like for, I, I, I like wish I could assign, actually, I'm going to teach a course next semester where the, the homework, first of all, there's no reading in the course. I was like asking my deans, I'm like, I want to teach this course. I want pass, fail only. And there's not a, there's really not a word of reading because, you know, these kids are in Ivy League school. They read all the time. So they can read other, in other classes. But every week you're going to have to do something. So, it, you know, you're going to experiment on yourself. Like your, your life is an experiment. And one of my assignments is that you have to go and fail something. Like really fail. Not, not kind of like I know, like something that makes you scared. Mm. And I wonder whether she could fail in a safer thing. Like, so if you're going and doing a dinner together and like, there's, you know, like a hundred people who are about to eat your food, that's not the time to get this person to get over their fear of like free fall. Right. I mean, you need a safer, you need like more like the photograph of the snake version right. of this. Right. So that would be my thought. Right. And I don't think I'm not a great mentor by the way. <laughs> like I, I'm, I'm a little bit like, here are the snakes go like, but, or this is terrible, like wrong color blue. Like, what are you thinking? But I think my better self says, that the greatest coaches figure out like what is the what is the equivalent of the picture of the snake? What is right. the equivalent of like just a you know a safe enough? Because people don't go twenty six miles in a day. I think we're there. So I got my first email yesterday with a bunch of ideas, and in it was the hilarious line. I sent this before I could erase it. <laughs> that's, that's a great that's yeah. a great first line yeah, yeah pretty much everyone will read the rest of your video maybe i'll try that sometime and just, just get to it. yeah and you know what i can only hope right and and uh i believe where they can go and i want this to happen not for me but for her so i'm excited about what that might look like but it's going to take time and whether this whole idea of suffering right that that time me is like more of a how should I say? I've always likened this to all of these things to asking someone out on a date. Or, Wait, what? Or like, <laughs> like, like uh, I'm asking that, someone so out for uh, asking someone out uh, for a dance in front of the entire school, right? Mm, okay. And if you got, and most people don't do it, right? When you go most to those early seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade dances, you see ninety nine percent plastered to the wall, and there's like four people on the. It's safer, safer to be on the wall. And mm. if I had to go back to. 12-year-old, 13-year-old Dave, I'd be getting rejected all the time. I don't, I wouldn't care. Because at that time when you're 12, 13 years old, 
you're like, man, I wish I could ask this person out on a date or a dance. But if they say no, then I'm going to have to transfer schools because it'll be so embarrassing. Right. But that's what you think. That's the reality that you know at the time. And it's so paralyzing. You make no decision and you become a wallflower. Right. But in the actuality, right, right, in the grand scheme of life, you're like, you go back time, you're like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you're, you're like, basically, people just like move on with their lives. Yeah. They don't care enough about right, you. Yeah. To be like, no yeah. one cares. Just yeah. do it. Make as many yeah. mistakes as possible. And that's how I still look at things. And I want my my the people that work for me to be like, the reason you feel uncomfortable when you do something like that is because it's out of your comfort zone. There's fear and there's failure and embarrassment. And I tell them, like, I want to make sure that I feel that every day. Because if I don't, that has not been a good day. Right, right. Because it's growth. That's growth to me. I think verbalizing this, like, in the same way, maybe, and I could be wrong, but, like, you verbalizing to them is a little bit like what it was like to read Emerson or Nietzsche when you were starting. Like, I actually think that, like, articulating these things out loud and giving it a name and, like, telling a story, I actually think this is, like, extremely helpful. I'm not saying it's, you know, like a panacea, but uh, – yeah, I mean, keep doing that. I, I also think people can tell if you really care about them. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're imperfect. You probably lose your temper or whatever. But um, I think they know if you care. And I think that counts for a lot, you know? Yeah, I want, I want the best for them. Like, that. that there's that uh, Steven Spielberg doc. And I think one of his first sort of patrons that gave him a job said, I'm going to support you in your failure as much as your success. And I use that line all the time. Oh, man, I'm stealing that one, too. Right? Someone said that to Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Huh. And I, I mean that to my team. It's like, I'm going to be here with you in the, your lowest moments, just as much as when you're going to be receiving your awards down the road. Do you do that for, um, like, you know, some people and not other people? Yeah. Or is it more like... <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I was going to ask if it's like, oh, you walk in the door and now you're part of the David got family. I got to pick my, my, my spots. And to me, it's always grooming the next generation. And... This is just like a maxim in our company. It's like you have to replace yourself. Mm. And it's either you replace yourself with someone that you've chosen that's better. And, and it's not just replacing yourself. Whoever you replace, they have to do a better job than you. You've said that Mar- – you call her Marguerite yeah. or does she have a name? Marge. Daisy. Marge. Daisy Marge, yeah. Daisy? Daisy's French for Marguerite. Right? It is? Yeah. Oh, or okay. English. English oh wait, yeah, for, English yeah, for, yeah. Oh, so um, Marguerite. Anyway, she, well, you said she's better at what she's doing than what you, when you were doing that that job. Because she, because she is. <laughs> she is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, I mean, she sounds like she is actually. Yeah. 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 She's a better executive. She's more competent. She's more articulate. She's more organized. She's less emotional about things than me. Like, and again, age has nothing to do with it. Again, like I think How this whole thing. How old is she, is, by the way? She's just turned thirty. Wow. It's about how many reps you have. It's partly about the reps. Life experience is important, no doubt. Right. But But it's not about your chronological age. By the way, you can get a lot of reps, you know, doing like if she's like really good at, you know, listening to people and like actually hearing what the look, you've had a lot of opportunities before the age of 30 to like get those reps in. But yeah, fair point. I don't think it's like the age on your resume. And um it's more important. So that's now that, happiness, isn't it? When you said yeah. like, can you be happy and like exhausting and sometimes exhausted and like you know, never satisfied? That's what I mean by a at a meta level, you can be like, oh, that pain, the kind of like obsession I had, or even just like a bad day where you made a mistake and then you're like, wow, <laughs> incredibly dumb. Like at, at a meta level, I think it's entirely possible to have a kind of happiness 
And by the way, I agree with you. It's not really marketed very widely, right? Yeah. By the way, it's hard to make a profit off of people having like a meta level of like comfort being uncomfortable. But what if the meta level is actually service to others? The meta-ist level, like, you know, Maslow? You, you know, told me about this on the phone I know, call last time. Right, Maslow's right. cool. Right? <laughs> Everyone should read Maslow too. So Maslow has this hierarchy of needs. I mean, he did. He's dead. But like, anyway, very influential psychologist. You know, the bottom is like food and, you know, safety. And then then you have to have like social belonging because it's like a dangerous thing to be like excluded from society. And then you get to the top of this pyramid of needs, right? It was like, okay, once you have those basic requirements, right? And, you know, you, when you get to the top, it, you know, he used to call it like self-actualization. But really, if you read Maslow, he would say like truly like the evolved life, like what we should all be doing is service to others. Like that is the true evolution. And the, this term like self-actualization is misleading because it sounds selfish too, right? Like my actualization, my cooking skills, my writing. And I'll tell you, I've never met somebody who was truly desperate psychologically, like in a moment where they were also like helping another person. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I think that's where you probably want to be. I think it's also, you can't put an age on that either. Some people be like, oh, I guess that's what happens when you're 60, right? right? Like, but you know, even if the young cooks were thinking like, oh, how am I helping somebody? Like, it's just not about you. I mean, it's not about yourself. That's it's your relations to others, right? Happiness for yourself is sort of meaningless unless it's something that can be shared. I to mean, me. I mean, for someone who like has publicly talked about like times in your life where you're not happy or even depressed or whatever, is it the opposite of looking at other people? I feel like there's something and I'm not I don't want to blame, but it's like there's something very inward looking about being sad and depressed. Like when I'm lonely and unhappy, it's just like I'm like self I'm so consumed with myself. The moment I like look at somebody else, I'm like, oh, maybe I should hold the door for them, or like maybe I should like it's like the sun, you know, comes through the clouds. And right. I'm like, right, okay. I don't know. I again for me, whenever it's the the irony, the sick, sick, twisted irony of depression is that one of the first things it does, at least to the people that I've seen it affect, is uh it increases your selfishness. Which only makes you more depressed. Correct. You only worry about yourself. You're just consumed, right? right? With your own. And that's like the first thing that happens. So it just you just spiral out of control because you're no longer allowed to think about anyone else but yourself. Right. And I think that is something that I've seen as a common thing. And it's like crazy. So here's something that like is not going to happen to you until like, you know, 16 years from now, like Hugo might be applying for college or whatever, who knows what he'll be applying for, but me, wouldn't it be great if like young people could have an incentive system? Cause you know, you think about like when kids go to college and I know this is far off for you, but like it's all, it really is all about you. How are your grades? How are your test scores? What are your activities? It would be amazing. And I don't know what the answer to this is, is like, could there be an incentive system that doesn't make people think about themselves all the time? Like, is there a way to reward and encourage just thinking about other people, like, you know, you're going to get in not based on your achievements, but like on the achievements of like the 14 other people in your homeroom or something like that. It probably wouldn't work. Maybe this is why it hasn't happened. But I do think that like on the horizon is your kids going to be like a conscious, I think you know. These are all Buddhist philosophies. I know. Sometimes I'm kind of yeah, like. Yeah, right? Yeah, I know. I, 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 and Hindu yeah. and Christian and They've been Jewish around a lot longer and, than yeah, us. So. Yeah, Islam. It's all there. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, I know. So that's what I'm always like, oh, I don't want to press these things, but I guess it is what I feel most comfortable like believing in, right? Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to barbecue from Aaron Franklin, who's been on our podcast, or for a variety of chefs, Thomas Keller, Alice Waters, with over 60 different instructors across tons of categories. There's literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. And each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. You can get barbecue tips from Aaron Franklin, arguably one of the great barbecue masters in the world today. There's so much there. There's so much information and the details are all memorable from these great coaches. And you can learn about screenwriting, photography from the very best in their fields. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all access pass, which I recommend because I like hopping around to different classes. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang for 15% off masterclass. And now back to the show. But going back to restaurants or organizations, like when you see people with grit, like do you ever see people with grit that stop having grit? I get a lot of questions about that. You know, human beings, one of the things that has been discovered about human nature in the last couple of decades is that there is enormous potential for change. By the way, that cuts both ways, right? People hear that and they're like, great, I can get smarter, which is true. And I'm like, oh, my brain can actually grow new neurons and new... True. And that's all good, generally. But it can actually go the other way, right? People can change in a negative direction or people can have like, you know, tremendous enthusiasm. People can be happy and then not happy in the next decade of their life. So I do think it's possible to be somebody who is passionate and persevering, who like works like you did um, and works like you do. And then, you know, for that to change. And the emails that I get are like, you know, like the subject line is like, is it possible to lose your grit? And then they like, dear Dr. Duckworth, I think- I've lost my grip. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it is possible, just like I think it is for like any psychological characteristic to- Would you think success is actually, change. too much success can actually deteriorate grit? I think that success is dangerous in two ways, um, both for yourself and for your children. This happens to you. I mean, I, I walk and I'm like wandering around the mall looking for this place, you know, and, um, you know, the people around you are- in a little bit in awe of you, right? Because there are a lot of people who work for you and they're like one of a cast of hundreds, if not, you said over a thousand, right? And I think success can be dangerous in that, like, you know, I get a little bit of this, you know, are, are people telling me I'm wrong a lot? Like, are people like, you know, telling me what they really think? Like, I don't know. Um, I think success can be dangerous to the individual in that it's hard to keep it real. It's hard to like not get caught into an echo chamber of people praising you or saying yes. Um, so that's one way. I think it's even more dangerous for your kids mm. because for a lot of people who struggled to become the successful people they are, they now live in the penthouse. They now have the tutors. They now have, you know, it is possible to almost remove every 
element of friction and suffering from your kid's life. Now, you know that's not how, what made you, the per, that forged your character, but I also think it's very hard for parents because whether you're successful and and have a lot of resources or not, I think parents hate to see their own children suffer. So you might say that like life is suffering, the Greek chorus, this is what you, but when you think of Hugo, like going home, feeling lonely, crying and being about to quit, it's very painful. Yeah, it's it's everything you're saying is stuff that I, I constantly think about and I wrestle with because inherited success to me is just killer of success in restaurants and other organizations. I can't speak for other organizations and I talked about it in the past, but I feel like good being a good parent at home is going to be similar to being a good boss here. And too many times, and we talked about this recently at this company offsite was when you see something wrong with one of your staff, you want to be the person that fixes it, or you want to be the firefighter and the hero mm. to be present. You know, that's really the goal that we're trying to teach and just not myself, but to our staff is what does being present mean? Mm. And, I think it has this, maybe this connotation that it means like you're there, but you're really not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? I don't, I well, don't you're like there, being, what, You know, if you, ask, if you ask, what do you think the definition of being present is to like the population? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what they would say. Like, what does it mean? It's too abstract. I mean, I guess, yeah. It's like, what do you mean? Like, I mean, literally, it means to like literally be there. But that's not enough. Right. You're talking about where you're mentally as well. This is very religious like thought, I think too. And it's paradoxical. I spoke, we spoke about this with Mike Schur as well. Like when Hugo begins to, he's crawling now and soon he's going to walk. Okay. And he's going to hurt himself. And, and I was like to Grace, we can't childproof everything, even though that's beginning to happen. Right. Because we need to, as much as we love Hugo, maybe the best way to love him is to let him get hurt. Right. And, that's incredibly hard. And to be present is to see that happen and to let it happen. And to let it happen. Not, and not, and to not intervene. Yeah. By the way, what did Grace say? We talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're negotiating. It's hard because yeah. you want to, but this is where I wrestle with. This is where I, it maybe go too far when I compared it to Lori Laughlin, right? Lori, oh, the, um, the full house woman. Yeah, the actress, yeah, yeah. Where I'm sure she loves her daughter, but she right. didn't want her to have any she pain didn't want and to suffer. suffer. Right. She wanted to not get into the. But then I have to think about is maybe she didn't want her daughter to suffer. Maybe you should also add, and she didn't want to suffer. She didn't want to suffer herself because that would be being present. Yeah, yeah. And being present takes time, and it's hard because it, you're like, wait, I'm here, but I'm watching my son fall and cry and hurt himself over and over again. When when do I interject myself to actually save him? And I don't have an answer. Because I don't think there is an answer. I think There's it's not a, an answer. It's, it's a struggle. It's, it's a always struggle. a struggle. It's a it's a balance, and balance to me is not fifty fifty. Balance is like a scale where you right. find balance on a scale. It's balanced <laughs> because it's fully opposing each other. But like, if you at least have the awareness, right? Like, if you can say predict that you're going to be like wrong sometimes, but if you just at least have the awareness that you have a tendency to want to protect your kid from like all pain then I think that's huge progress because I think just even having that self-knowledge will help you get the balance right more often than if you don't have any awareness that this isn't, you know. But I've only gotten this awareness because I've been a bad chef. I've been an absentee chef. I've been, you could say, an abusive chef by like verbally saying shit I shouldn't say. I've been a helicopter parent chef. 
I've been a tiger parent. I've been everyone. I think the hardest but best way to be a chef is to do everything I can to teach Hugo what I think the moral sandbox for him to play in is and to hope that he makes more right decisions than wrong decisions. And I've seen this as a cook and as a chef telling a cook this, I can make that cook do anything I want them to do. But when my back is turned and they're by themselves and there's many avenues to get to the end goal and no one will know the difference, I will hope that that cook will take the the hardest way possible. But how, how can I make them do it on their own? Right. And I think you can only do that by like exam- living your life, being an example, and also just reinforcing what culture is. I think culture is constitution, right? And, culture, and what does that mean? Like culture. the constitution of America to me is like oh, the framework, constitution, right? The capital and then C. like culture is like a, the, the constitution of a, a group or right. an organization. Right. And I look at this as a sandbox and how, this is how I explain it to my team. It's like yeah. our job is to define what the sandbox and the parameters for you to have the freedom and the autonomy to do whatever the fuck you want to so do with it. So it's got the these sides, right. but within it, you do whatever you want. Right. And right. these are the, the rules. There's certain things that are completely off limits, right? right. That right. are just wrong, <laughs> right. right? Right. When you make a wrong decision, we hope that you learn to turn these eventually into more right decisions. And when you want to get out of the sandbox or think that it's too narrow, that's when we have a meeting. That's when we have a conversation about expanding the parameters with the sandboxes. Right. That's what I hope our weekly yeah, or monthly meetings are. that's your culture evolves to. But I think that's the same way I think of being a parent to Hugo is mm-hmm. I have to put him into as many situations as possible that are sometimes unfavorable. Right. But Sometimes a little painful. A little painful. But it's my job not to make the decision for him. Right. I have to only hope that he, you know, Right. Sees how to make, you know, the only way he's going to learn how to make the right decisions is through fucking up. I don't think he has to take quite as long and winding a path as you did. Right. (laughs) Okay. Right. Like you could be like a little bit straight. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think, um, my kids ran around barefoot. I, I remember actually going back to when, like, maybe even before Hugo's age, you know, you go to those parenting classes on mm, how to get your kids yeah. to sleep through the night. And I remember being in this, like, circle of moms and, you know, we all had to just say, like, who we are and, like, how many minutes or even seconds it was that we could listen to our baby crying before we had to rush in, pick them up and, you know, comfort them. And, you know, women are going around like, oh, you know, about a minute, like, you know, 30 seconds. And I was like, about 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, like they're crying, they're breathing. So like it's – and I don't put that out there to say like I'm, I'm a perfect mom. But I have been aware of this for a while. And I do think that uh, human beings – like like think about if you put your arm in a cast, right? If you put your arm in a cast, it very quickly wastes away. Like, you know, you don't need the bicep, you don't use it. Where do you think like strength of will comes from? It only comes from the re- requirement of life to have – strength and to have resolve. And so, so if you remove your kid from every danger, every, you know, bit of discomfort, you are effectively the, doing the equivalent of putting their arm in a cast. Right? 100%. Right. And their ability to be like, oh, now I know what to do withers, or you could even say like never even develops in the first place. And you, I think a lot of kids of privileged parents are right. suffering and, from that. And, and that's, it's the right resistance. Like my mom came up recently and uh, they were appalled that we let Hugo cry <laughs> when he woke up or yeah. like we weren't there and yeah. she was scolding me and yeah. I was like mom you're not going in there yeah and it's you're just not and she's like what are you doing he's crying he needs us right. I said mom look at us Grace and I are sitting on the bed looking at the baby monitor 
right. at everything. We're right. literally we're not neglecting. We're not neglecting him. him. Yeah. We are watching. This is intentional. Yeah. This is intentional. Like it would be one thing if we weren't here at all, or we we're outsourcing the whole thing. But we're. I was like, Mom, this is the definition of being present. Right. We're literally watching and waiting when and if we should intervene. Right. And then, like thirty-five minutes passed, and he went back to bed. And right. I was he like, comforted Mom, himself. Right. I don't know how you know. There's a weird thing also. I think when parents become grandparents, yeah. it's like they become like they become, crazy. Like, they like forget everything. <laughs> like you can have ice cream for breakfast, whatever. But you know, maybe kids need that in their lives too. But but going back, like, how do you teach someone to increase their suffering if that is the 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 marketing tool that is being erased? Um, you know, there's a paper that just came out, and it's about um, you know how like there's this metaphor people say that you know success is the journey, not the destination. There's actually this like scientific study where they True, randomly assigned right. people to like literally look at the same photograph, and they just labeled like the road. It's like a picture of like a road, and then you can see like I don't know a house in the background. And they actually have people like either think about success as the journey, and then they have a, like it, like it literally says journey and has an arrow and it's pointing to the road, or destination, and there's like an arrow and it points to this like house in the back. And I do think that really the secret to happiness and if, if you want to be happy and successful, right? So if you have ambition, but you also want to be happy, then I do think you want to embrace the metaphor of the journey. Mm. Like, you know, the work is never done. You know, as soon as we open this restaurant, it's doing well. You're going to ask like, how could it be better? Or, you know, you, you do other creative things. I mean, the thing is about like, when an Olympian wins the gold medal, I mean, there is a kind of destination-ish, I mean, you know, like they're, okay, you've spent your whole life and you finally accomplished what you dreamed of and you're not going to maybe be in the next Olympics, right? Maybe, right. You know, right? Like, I think that, that, that really success, the people I most admire, they have a life goal that is abstract enough to allow them to say like, but even that destination was just part of the journey, right? Because in in some more abstract way, what I'm what I'm about is like seeing what's possible, or you know, helping others be their best. Or I mean, it, usually when you articulate, and I, I'm going to ask you this, um, you know, if you articulate your personal like life mission, I mean, in terms of your professional life, right? Like, what is it that you're after? I think that oftentimes when people find the words for it, it's not like open this restaurant or win this gold medal. It's like always compete or, you know, be the best that I can be. Or And if you do that, then you're always on the journey because you're never going to be like done with that kind right. of, you know, do you, do you have one, by the way? Do you have a, yeah. Like, does how does well, this sit with you? There's a lot here. Um, I could see a path where my journey is just like, more, more, more. Okay. Like, let's not accumulate more, but like, it's never going to be enough. So we just got to keep on doing it. And I've been on that path, even though I feel like there's nothing, right? Yeah. And hopefully this explains it. Tell me if it doesn't. But like, Free Solo won an Oscar for Best yeah. Doc. Yeah. And the entire, like, whatever. Everyone's like, that's so beautiful. It's amazing. Right. Jimmy Chin. Like yeah. And it's yeah. a beautiful movie. But I was like, why is that celebrated more than the Don Wall? That's, you know, Tommy Caldwell was in both movies. And hmm. it just shows to me the marketing again behind it. We want to celebrate the lone genius that's that accomplishes his task. Tommy Caldwell does something equally as difficult, but in a different way without going too deep into it. I Spends actually his, saw that documentary. Right. Yeah, it's Spends amazing. his entire life to get to this top of the Don Wall. And then literally it was like, uh, no. He says, I'm not going to do it unless – I can get my partner up yeah, there right. as well. Yeah. And I that broke me. I was like, my God, that's amazing. Who would be able to do that? To be able to be like, 
it's not going to feel good if I do it by myself. And I was like, that's the shit I want to do. Right, right. So that's revealing about you, right? And yeah. like you're, you don't want to be the person who gets to the top and then gets to an even topper top and like an even higher, like solo. You want to do. I want to learn how not to win. Or you want to help other people. Which I think is not winning, weirdly enough. Oh, I guess the word win, right? Yeah. 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 You know, like the desire to constantly win will consume you. To only yeah. extinguish that desire, I think you have to learn how not to win. Right. And if that sounds paradoxical, I know, but that's no. what I've been meditating on. I, I don't think I've ever had a really strong desire to, like, I never played sports. I don't have, like, a desire to beat other people. So I don't have, I don't have to, like, work out that demon. I don't, I'm not like, oh, I want to beat you. Like, I want to win. Um, but I do have an ex- extremely strong desire to, I, I'm You very, seem ultra competitive to me, though. But the thing is, is like, and I know it sounds cheesy, but it's not really like, um, oh, I want to be better than this. I'm not saying I don't have moments of jealousy and envy, which I do, but, um, but I don't really think I'm primarily driven to like beat another person, which I associate more with like sports and kind of like, like I, I don't wake up and say like, you know, I want to write a better book than this other person. I just want to write an exquisite book. Mm. Right. Like I, so I think it's a different kind of drive. I know. I mean, when I say it, it's just like, it just sounds incredibly like, no, it, it's, yeah, it's, like it's insincere or no, whatever. No, but it's yeah. nuanced, I think, right? You have to see it in that light. I mean, it's nuanced. And like, I won't pretend to say that, like, I don't look to my left and look to my right. And when I see somebody do something great, I have like a twinge of jealousy. <laughs> like, you know, I read that paper about like the journey and the destination. I was like, oh, I wish that were my paper. But, um, but mostly I think like, I think it would be, for me, my top level goal is to like use psychological science to help children thrive. And it's not a, you know, there's no verb in that mission statement that's like, beat all the other psychologists, like be more famous. I don't know. Like I, I think by the way, having a goal like that, not only is it like primarily about other people and I've asked people to write down their personal philosophies. Um, Most of them are not like solo philosophies, by the way. Like if you just read the language, you're like, oh, this implicitly or explicitly talks about other people. But the other thing about like writing a life goal in language that you feel like you could live with for forever is like you never get to a destination. There isn't such a thing you're never kind of done because it's like, when am I going to wake up and say like, yeah, I've used psychological science to help children thrive. It's like, you know, I mean, Pete Carroll, I don't know if you're a Seahawks fan, but like, you know, his is always compete. Two words, very eloquent. Like, you know, it has always has a lot of meaning to him. Compete has a lot of meaning to him. I knew I was going to like your book when you had Pete Carroll in it. Oh, are you, are you? Are <laughs> I just you love Pete sports. Carroll, I just, I mean, I just thought <laughs> what he did and how he did it was very different at the time. And by the way, he's, he's trying to over, you know, you, you said like, it's hard to win a Super Bowl in the sense that it's hard to be great after you, you know, I don't know a lot about sports and I, I don't know a lot about football, but when I, when I watch the way he is and I talk to him, um, he is, you know, not feeling like he made it to the destination, mm. right? Like he's, you it's know, never enough. He's, he's, it's never enough, but he's also like, he's really not, unha- he's a very happy person or he's doing a really good job faking it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that you can be always on this journey. I think you can be happy. And, I think he takes it out on the gum he chews because it's very aggressive <laughs> chewing know, the gum. Like, literally, <laughs> his cases of bubble gum on his, on his uh, desk. I think that human beings, by nature, are goal-directed creatures. Like, when we're happiest, actually. Like, you ever see a kid squatting at the edge of water, like at the beach and, you know, they're making a sandcastle, mm. right? They're so, they're so into it, right? Because they're, they're on a journey. They're after a goal. The goal is to like make the sandcastle, dig the moat, make sure that the water, 
And that's when we're happy. It's not having made the castle, right? But in the process of trying to reach our goals. And maybe one of the challenges of like modern existence is, first of all, we've removed a lot of the necessary journeying, the kind of goals of like, oh, now I have water for dinner. Like, great. Like, you know, now I have meat for tomorrow. Great. Like, we've removed a lot of those challenges from our life through technology and wealth. And in a way, we've removed one of the things that makes us happy, right? Which is to struggle and which is to have uncertainty and like, oh, I wonder if it's going to rain tomorrow. Uh, Like what's going to happen to the crops? Now we know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. (laughs) And like, if it's not going to rain, we'll irrigate them. Like, so, so there is this like paradoxical way in which, you know, the, we've been so successful that we've undermined in a way our, you know, because we're really wired to be pursuing goals. But what happens when we've reached a point where we don't want to suffer? Like, are we in a place society-wise where we're not celebrating suffering? And I add this, hmm. maybe what we need to do for the character lab, and this is me wanting to ask you this, is because yeah. I never wanted to be religious. But then I wonder, how do you memorialize suffering? Because hmm. if we were, went back to Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1778, and is that when Harvard like, was created? No, or no, something? like it's two years after the oh. Declaration of Independence, right? Oh, okay, and right. then like we're like, fuck, remember, remember two years ago how <laughs> shitty it was under British rule? Like it sucked. <laughs> yeah. Like God damn, this these fireworks are about this mem- memorializing this like day, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then the bicentennial happens, and people have to remember what the fuck happened. And every day now, July Fourth is beer, fireworks, <laughs> hot dogs, hot dogs. Right. We've completely forgotten what it means. And then you ask. Who is it really memorable to? And then I'm like, oh, people that actually served in the services and lost someone. And then I was like, oh, what other holiday? Memorial Day. The only people that ever truly take Memorial Day seriously are people that served in the services. Veterans, I was going to say, yeah. Of which there are fewer, right? Fewer and fewer. And most people are like, three-day holiday, let's go to the beach. Right, right, right. I, I think if you actually did a poll of Americans, like, what is Memorial Day? I really think it would be incredibly depressing. Like, how many of them actually know what it's, what, yeah. Maybe we need to actually memorialize, memorialize suffering. suffering. And then I think about this. What organizations have been so successful that they've lasted thousands of years? And I think they've been successful because they've memorialized suffering. Real religions? Yeah. Every religion. Judaism is my, I love Judaism because it's just I so be great. I do too. Yeah. But like everything, the Sabbath, they're constantly reminded right. of what happened in their past. Everything. The Day of Atonement. Stone, literally. Right. It's amazing. I think it's so beautiful. It's right. about what's happened and the trials and tribulations. And God damn it, you're going to remember. Right. Christianity is fucking crazy. The, <laughs> you're going to. Jesus died on the cross for your right. sins. Right. Like suffered for you. Suffered for you so you right. don't have to die for eternity. Like right. it's all about suffering and condemnation and penance. Catholicism, the OG, it's crazy <laughs> because masses Did you just call Catholicism? Yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. This is the body and blood of Christ. Right. Like come given, on, that's given fucking for you. crazy. Which you then eat. And then Buddhism literally is just like, fuck it. This entire religion is about suffering. Everything leads to suffering. And look how successful they've been. And maybe it's because they've memorialized suffering in such an organic, honest way. That's no bullshit. Well, some bullshit. But 
How do we do? Is isn't this something that we should do? Because <laughs> July the fourth, yeah. Memorial Day, we've tried to do it unsuccessfully. Right. But that's what weirdly I want to do in my restaurant group is how do right. we find ways? Right. And it sounds ridiculous, memorialize right. suffering. But like, why right. are we here? Right. You know, some cooks here are restaurants. They're like, we're, I'm here because of a paycheck. They don't know why we're busy. They have no idea. They're just like, Ugh, we're so busy. Right. People would kill. Kill to be, to be busy. Right. And we, yeah, yeah. We're busy because. There's a lot of people that came before you that worked their asses off. Right. And doesn't that create more empathy and humility? If I walked into one of your restaurants and I asked them like, oh, you know, what's the story of this restaurant? Would they be able to tell me the origin story? No. We should work on that. I'm trying. We're trying. Like, like I went to go, you know, I told you about, you know, this guy at the Cleveland Clinic. I went to go interview him, Toby Cosgrove. And when I got to the Cleveland Clinic, right, went right there from the— airport, I guess it was an assistant or maybe it was an assistant's assistant who like just walked me through the maze all the way. And I said, um, oh, you know, tell me about this place. And she told me the origin story of the Cleveland Clinic. And I thought to myself, this is culture, right? I think part of memorializing suffering is like memorializing a history, like not forgetting, like, why do we, why do we even celebrate on July 4th? By the way, while you were saying that, I had to think to myself, I'm like, July 4th. Oh, yeah. I guess that's the song I forgot, too. So I'm guilty. (laughs) But I'm just saying, like, I do think that great cultures and great organizations, you know, they memorialize it. They ritualize, right? Like, um, everybody who walks around knows the origin story. And, you know, the origin story, of course, every day slips farther into the past. And so it's even more remarkable that people can say, you know, just the other day I was talking to somebody, you know, she works for like a for-profit company. I mean, they make a lot of money doing surveys, right? And um, without even being prompted, she gave me the origin story of this company. You know, there's an anthropologist, he met a sociologist, he, he thought of medicine as culture. I mean, there was a pride in it. There was like an understanding of like, I'm connected to the past and the future. So when I go to visit like a a team or a a school or a a company, a restaurant, I like to ask people, and usually it's even more revealing if you ask someone who's not the CEO, who's not like the head chef, right? Or the, like, oh, tell me about this place. Mm. When they spontaneously tell me the origin story, like, I know that is strong culture. And that is only one way, of course, of memorializing suffering. But I do think that there are ways that you can, um, you know, I emailed you this, Dave. I actually, I, I emailed you, Character Life has a culture book. It has our origin story in it. It has a timeline. It has like a glossary of language that we use. Like, oh, you know, when we say this, this is what we mean. Like it codifies certain things like out of respect, like, you know, this is how we handle emails. Like I actually think, there are ways to kind of intentionally memorialize the values that you want, including suffering as, you know, a kind of a noble path. And I think that like, if you look at really great leaders, um, you know, one thing is true of all of them is like, they don't kind of just leave it up to chance. They'll like be like, oh, I heard Netflix has a great uh, culture book, which is how I created a culture book. I went on the internet and found the yeah. Netflix culture book, read the whole thing, liked a lot of it wanted to improve and wanted to make it. And I was like, oh, I'm making one. And there's the equivalent of a culture book, I think, in a lot of great organizations, which is why I emailed you one. So you should, yeah, like your uh, homework. I have my homework for sure. Or, you know, Daisy's homework, you know, Marge's homework. She's, um, this is why she's way better at this. Than See, me. you got to forward that email because she's going to. I will. I promise. <laughs> I apologize. But, um, wow. I think we talked enough about suffering. Okay. I think, I think we talked about everything. 
I still don't know how people are going to be like, yeah, this is a podcast I want to listen to. <laughs> I, I love know. Angela Duckworth, but That's man, they're all gonna, over the place. They, what do you think? They want to talk about suffering again and again and again. What are your What are your podcasts usually like? They're all over the place. They're all over. I know. Yeah. I was going to say, what am I asking you? This I listen to them. This, this is par for the course. But uh, people uh, listen to you. They want to know what you're. I, I like. still don't understand that. But is I, this really successful? This podcast. I think people listen to it. Yeah. Yes. Do you know how successful it is? Like, how can you there tell? Was, I was told uh, about a month ago that there have been 15 million downloads of episodes across all platforms. That's insane. And it's not even a, like, crazy successful podcast, but. Um, it's insane. Yeah. For about five minutes, I wanted to have a podcast. And then I, then I found out how much work it was. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't want to have one anymore. You'd be great. It's more fun to be on your podcast. Well, I'd love to have you on multiple times. Oh, well, You're the best. Thank you. Let's get you some food. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, Angela Duckworth, for that conversation. I mean, I know we touched upon a lot of topics, but I could talk to her forever because she just has so much information about the life that I, I want to live and get better at. And um, man, like, I can't believe this is what she studies and, and she specializes in. And, and more importantly, I think she is, again, an agent of good. She's trying to make the world a better place and to challenge convention as to why people are successful. And we need more of that. So thank you, Angela. And check out her character lab and all that she does at University of Pennsylvania. Um, wanted to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajordomoMedia.com questions. We have been getting a lot of them, but we're also trying to answer stuff from the iTunes podcast review. So if you give us five stars, taking a page out of Mina Kimes' book, we will answer your question. And these are some questions from our iTunes podcast page from East Village Forever. Can you speak about how you started the first restaurant corporate structure to then having a hospitality group? How are you able to learn this, whether having accountants and lawyers to guide you in the right direction or being guided by other restaurant groups? So East Village Forever, this is a probably better to talk about in a longer format, but I will quickly answer as best I can. I've always maintained when I was just starting it out that you pay for what you can get. And if you can't pay for it, you try to do it yourself. So all the LLCs and the government's filings, I did myself. I don't even know how the hell I did it, to be honest with you, even to registering the name and trademarks. Like, I don't even know if I followed it online because that information wasn't there. Even getting department of buildings, construction codes and permitting, I just did so much of it myself. But the corporate structure was a simple LLC, limited liabilities company. And when I mentioned you pay for what you get, you pay for the account you can get, you pay for the legal services you can get. And honestly, like they weren't very good. But again, like you sort of cross that bridge when you get there and you try to improve. And it's if you played video games or something growing up, it's like building a character on like NBA 2K or Madden or something like this. It's like they get better if you you just do it more and more. And our organizational structure, at least how we structured it, was very beginner level. And now it's it becomes its own organism. And it's a, a corporate body now. And, and it's literally a living organism that's highly complex, which started out that was so rudimentary, something I started. And we have really great accountants and really great lawyers and all of this stuff. But my one suggestion to you is don't worry about that right now. Like 
cross that bridge when you get there. And this is dangerous advice. I, I, I know, but I've seen too many people start off a business, particularly restaurants that spend all their money on legal fees. Try to do what you can yourself. And I'm not going to tell you about how complex our organization is right now. And we have wonderful, terrific people that have made our organization as good as it is. But when I first started out, it was literally just me. And I would also say that I got a lot of help. I got a lot of help from Tom Calicchio and the whole family at Kraft, from their HR to how they did payroll and Marco Knorr and Paul Greco at Hearth. Like, this is too hard to do by yourself. And if I didn't get their help, I would have been up Shit's Creek for sure. And they gave me so many tips as to how to structure something because it was really just an army of one. So a lot of people don't have those resources, but I can only tell you my story. Uh, Joshi and Eli write, is a peanut butter and jelly the most quintessential American food? Top five American food inventions. Yeah. I will say it is a top five American food invention, whether it's quintessential American, uh, I guess. I I don't really know the history of it too much, but uh, not to be controversial, I will say that Japan has the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the world, and you can get it at their convenience stores, and it's pre-made with a crust cut off, and... um, they're the best. They're just simply the best. And it's my, my show and uh, I'm right. And you guys are wrong. No, I'm joking, but uh, I love PB and J's. There's a great article that ESPN wrote. I can't remember the, the journalist's name about how it's like the snack food of choice by NBA players. Cause it's, it's delicious and gives everyone the energy that they need to play. And who doesn't like PB and J's? It's unfortunate. There's so many peanut allergies. Uh, I'll ask one more question. Chef Ted writes in, you recently talked about the photos hanging in your various restaurants, i.e. Greg Popovich. What photo, if any, is hanging at Major Domo? So we don't have any photos like sports figures or shit like that. Um, and most of our restaurants have one I, one thing that we try to sort of base it around, at least for the, internally the staff. Like we have a Neil Young by Steve Keen in Toronto, and I, I can go on and on. Obviously, the McEnroe paraphernalia that's at Sambar and Noodle Bar. Noodle Bar, we have the photo of the band by Elliot Landy. Um, Major Domo is different. We want it to be very different than Momofuku. It's got new recipes, new crew. There's nothing that's Momofuku about it. And we want to do something very different. So we have a lot of art from David Cho, but it's not the art that he's done. It's very different art from his earlier period and a little bit later. And we have this great mural by James Jean in the back. So it's, it was more intentional. How should I say that than we've ever done? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I've talked long enough. Thank you again to Angela Duckworth and to you guys for listening. Check out everything she does. And thank you again. Check out our iTunes page and send out questions to ask Dave at majordomamedia.com. Give us five stars. However you rate this. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much.